Who should be the ones left in charge of congressional salaries? Congress itself or the people? That's today's topic and continuing this blueprint limited collaboration series with Ron from Between the Liars, discussing and debating the practicality of what it means to have a smaller government. I am your host, Ken Drew, and this is Taboo Topic. today with the latest content through social media. Type in the search bars of Instagram, Getter, Truth Social, and TikTok, mainly those first three of Instagram, Getter, or Truth Social, Kenjin underscore express, I repeat, Kenjin underscore express, spell the word engine, then put the letter K in front of the word engine, then you get Kenjin, one word, underscore express. You can also follow this show on Facebook just by typing in the search bar of Taboo Topic. Look for the logo that says Honesty equals Understanding. You can listen to this show on any platform from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, and even Amazon, which, by the way, please don't forget to give this show a rating and review. If it's anything less than a five-star, let me know so I can better serve you. Last but not least, you can find the inspirations for the Wednesday's episodes on my Substack newsletters. Type in the URL at kenjin296.substack.com if you want a visual of the inspiration and you want that script to see what the episode on Wednesday shall be focused on. Share this with your friends and family members because here on this show, show, we dare to think out loud and question the narrative. Free speech triumphs safe space because in order for us to think, we have to risk being offensive. If we want true peace in our society, we have to be able to be honest with each other. Without judgment, if we can be honest with each other, then we can achieve real peace in our society. Amen. This is a reminder that the Biden administration abandoned nine to 15,000 Americans in Afghanistan. Now, you won't hear about this from the media or any politician for that matter because the global elite have their own agenda that disregards human life and basic human dignity. So, to the families and individuals that have been affected by this abandonment, know that you have not forgotten. Most Americans, like myself, know or your loved ones didn't choose to stay behind. If there's any way I can further help besides bring awareness, reach out at Kenjin underscore express. I repeat, Kenjin underscore express on Instagram. Spell the word engine, put the letter K in front of the word engine, then you get Kenjin, one word, underscore express, if you have, by one in a millionth chance, hear this message. It's not much, but know this, justice will be served for those who lied to justify their competence. After all, I believe in God, who is in control of all things, and he says, vengeance is mine. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back. Welcome back to Taboo Topic. I am your host, Ken Drew, for your Blueprint series, and I am joined by my friend Ryan from Between the Liars. Ryan, go ahead and say hello to everyone. Hello, hello. And uh, folks, we have a crazy week that just occurred. Um, By the time we're recording this, it would have been at least uh, two days since the FBI raided the home of former President Trump. Uh, and if you follow me on social media, you would have seen by now the statement I put out concerning my thoughts and my response to the FBI raiding the former president's home. And uh, 
I want to give Ryan this opportunity to give Ryan to get his initial thoughts as far as his initial statement, as far as his, uh, as far as what happened on uh, Monday, August 8th. So, I mean, Ryan, I think this, it's kind of weird. If you would have asked me, like, these current events stories would have, would have been happening by the time we started this series, I would have laughed in your face because everything that's happening, whether it's the Inflation Act or whether it's the FBI raiding the president's home, former president's home, it just seems very timely for this show that we're doing right now. So, uh, oh, you're absolutely correct. It's very timely. I don't think we could have asked for better timing on this because, I mean, well, you're just, in my opinion, it's a broad overreach of government power, and this series is about limiting the power of government. But most of what we talk about is limiting federal power, right? Like we're we're okay for the most part with states. We've talked a little bit about restrictions that we'd be interested in, but this is, you know, FBI. You've kind of got the the three-letter mafia is going on here, the FBI, the CIA, the EPA. Like, There's a lot of uh, these branches which aren't really beholden to the people. There's kind of this uh, almost this, this mediated effect, right, where you elect specific officials, mostly the president, who then goes and appoints leaders of these different agencies. But we've seen you know, historically these agencies a- acting well outside their purview. And I think the FBI has just really shown that. I, I think my biggest comment here is that if if the FBI wanted to maintain credibility and they didn't want to be seen as a political actor, this was about the worst mistake they could have made. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and a lot of people are would, would re- rebut that by saying, well, no one is above the law. And I would say, well, that's that's correct. But then my next question is going to be, well, are we then going to see Hillary Clinton get raided for the emails? Are we going to see Hunter Biden? Like it, 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 it is political when it cuts one way. And when the Democrats here, this case, it, it, it's, I guess it wasn't exactly the Democrats, but you see a Department of Justice under a Democrat president, Joe Biden, going after with, well, and, and we don't we don't know what's on that warrant yet. Um, I believe it was former Governor <laughs> Andrew Cuomo right. of New York who said the FBI needs to immediately release those documents so that we know what they rated him for or else what we're going to see is people become, as they are currently and justifiably so, massively suspicious that this is not some kind of banana republic doomsday type of a downfall for our <laughs> government. Like, I mean, I cannot think of a, a better example of political hackery of, of when a new regime sends the – agencies or branches of government that they have influence over to go after political rivals. I mean, we literally, we've seen this in Ukraine. We've seen this in Russia. We've seen this in China, like any nation where democracy certainly does not reign. No, we are not a democracy, but where democracy as the Democrats like to say does not reign. We see something (laughs) like this happening. Now, listen, if they have something on Trump, by all means, like, you know what? I don't think anyone's above the law. But I'm pretty positive that if they had something on Trump that was more than just some archives weren't returned, we would be hearing about it now and Trump would be in chains. Like they they wouldn't have just <laughs> they wouldn't have this would not have unfolded the way that they did. I gotta say, I think Trump is probably the cleanest man on record. They've investigated him so many times and he's come out clean on the other side every single time. And they like they tried to impeach him twice. They tried to, uh, they tried to get on his ta- try to get on his taxes in New York. I think it was, and they still and they couldn't find anything. It was, it's a witch hut, I think. Um, well, and if, if they're gonna, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just gonna say that I think, um, if 
people are going to really say like no one's above the law, then I mean, like you said, like where's how come they haven't gone after Hunter Biden? How come they haven't gone after Hillary Clinton? How come they haven't gone after Bill Clinton? How come they haven't gone after any of the Jeffrey Epstein associates? How come they haven't gone after the gymnastics uh, people who were behind the sex scandal that was going on during the, the during the Olympics in Beijing? You know, it's like yeah. the FBI well, since since its inception has been used as a political tool. Now, ironically, I actually, I, I, I was planning on going into federal law enforcement before, and I think we've talked a little bit about yeah, this on before. Yeah, on the voters' eye edition. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when we talked about uh, my educational background and what I do now, I had actually planned to go into the FBI because, you know, since I was little, like, I wanted to be a member, like a, you know, secret agent. <laughs> you know, like, I wanted to be yeah. a field officer. Like, and, and when they're doing their job and acting within their purview, I think that, you know, they, they have a great duty right like they're supposed to be defending us from inter international terrorism as well as like i mean the fbi's focus is domestic terrorism they do collaborate with the cia on international things as well but like this if they're seeming to be more of a political hack at this point then i don't like it and, and to me the big thing is that they're not they're not releasing the information right because I, if i'm not mistaken the uh the director of the FBI that is currently the director of the FBI was appointed by Donald Trump. And people have pointed to that to say, well, that shows this isn't a Democrat operative. But I think people at this point, when we're talking about how corrupt this seems to be and how much they've stepped outside their their mission, their mandate, their purview, whatever you want to call it, then, you know, they're going to also have those same people point to that as just the swamp in general, right? Like it is the deep state. It is the the um, exercise of power that is keeping the people in the dark. I don't know. I just feel like if I understand there's classified things that we can't know about, don't need to know about. But I also think that what terrifies me about this situation is what based off of what we know, it seems that they suspended a lot of constitutional rights on very scanty evidence that seems to be more of a fishing expedition to try and figure out uh, what connections he might have had to January 6th. Like, we're still on this two years later. That's really what this seems like. It doesn't seem like they had anything and at least not enough. Well, let me ask you this, because the media, and I agree with the media, this is pretty much going to, I mean, this pretty much unites the Republican base at this point, because um, we're all going to view this as a political hack and political persecution on a former president, because no former president had ever gone through this before. Uh, so no, no classified material would have justified a right. Even CNN analysts, you know it's bad when the Clown News Network admits that this is like far-fetched to send to order a raid on a former president's private home. Um, nothing like this had ever happened before. So I want to ask you, uh, before we move on and kind of start getting to the show, do you see yourself voting for Trump in the Republican primaries, or do you have some other preferred candidates in your mind? I don't know. I haven't decided. I I would I'd be interested to see what DeSantis's foreign policy is. I think that one of the highlights of the Trump presidency was his foreign policy. We saw a lot good done. I certainly was not a fan of his tweets. I was not a fan of his rhetoric. <laughs> but if you look at what Trump said versus what he did, his actual policies that were passed were incredibly moderate. And I will sit down and debate anyone on any of the policies that he brought up because I think the generalization that is made 
is he was racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever they want to say about his policies. But then I, I've gone through the policies and they weren't. And I'd be happy to debate anyone on that. And so I think that what Trump was as far as policy passing, he was very moderate and he was more, I don't know, fiscally conservative was is exactly how I'd characterize his presidency, but he was very conservative as far as trying to make our borders. He didn't let us get overrun in the southern Mexico border that you know Biden's administration has allowed them to do. And it came to national security in general. You liked what he did there. I, I did. Now, DeSantis, I think that DeSantis has a much better grasp on how the government is supposed to work. We see him moving pieces and activating portions of the government because he understands how the law works. And it, maybe it's not him, maybe it's people who advise him, but he executes it in a way that he looks more put together, in my opinion, than Trump did. And I like that like to me DeSantis is a lot of Trump's policies which are moderate but also very logical right like and I think that a lot of the criticisms on the DeSantis front have been more along the lines of they just don't like what he's doing or they think that he's picking battles that don't exist no I disagree with that personally but I think DeSantis (laughs) does a much better job um, informing his voter base of what he's doing, why he's doing it, and following through on it. So, I mean, honestly, I I, I hesitate because I, I haven't seen him on international policy, but I liked, I've liked what I've seen of his stuff in the domestic front. I think he stays within his lane. I think that he, you know, doesn't do the overreach portion. And that's, that's largely what I look for in a candidate as, as a big chunk of it is, are they going to uphold their actual duties and not, you know, I, I don't like this massive federalism that we've seen from any of the Democratic candidates lately. <laughs> well, uh, for me, as much as great of a job as Santos has done in the state of Florida, I think he's better off staying as a governor of Florida, personally. Um, with Donald Trump, I think he's got the personality that's needed in Washington, D.C. to clean up, to drain the swamp, per se. And you can make the argument that he had four years to drain the swamp. And that was like his part of his first campaign slogan as far as, you know, uh, make America great again and also drain the swamp. But I personally think that the reason why he didn't necessarily was able to fully drain the swamp was first and foremost, uh, obviously, whether you agree with his policies or not and everything like that or his rhetoric, he also seemed to care about following the laws and enforcing the laws that were present. Uh, he wasn't one of those individuals that was kind of was picking and choosing laws. He picked like a typical bureaucrat, like the whole border wall situation, the executive action he took in that was actually an enforcement of a law that was passed by Congress in the 2000s, but they never actually enforced it as far as like, updating the walls at the southern border, which at the time was just like little beady fences where a school kid, a school children, school children could just jump over easily. Um, and so there's that aspect. And there's just something the media in the Justice Department is not going after Rob DeSantis. They're going after Trump. And I think that's also really appealing to me that he is truly a threat to the establishment that in a way that Rob DeSantis isn't. And it's not to say that Rob DeSantis wouldn't be a great president or that he's also not a threat to the establishment, but 
to me is intriguing that they're more terrified of Donald Trump than Rob DeSantis. And because of that, and I think personally, the reason why I think that is he used to be that person that would donate to political to political campaigns. And so he knows how the system works within and how the corrupt and how corrupt these people are. And they're afraid that if he gets into office after everything they put him through, he's basically going to go th- throw everyone under the bus, essentially. And it, since it would be since since it would be like his second term, he would have nothing to lose at that point. Like he's got nothing to hold back. As far and I probably would say that it would be good if, say, he had Rob DeSantis as vice VP, and then from there, maybe have like a twelve-year run, perhaps. If Donald Trump wins twenty twenty-four, then you have Rob DeSantis, and he's—I mean, even more moderate Democrats like Rob DeSantis because of his rhetoric. And because of his ability to answer to the media, not just tell the media they're wrong, but explain to them why they're wrong and call them out on their BS as well. I would be very intrigued to see that on the ticket. Do I, I as much, do I want Rob DeSantis to stay governor? Absolutely. But uh, Rob DeSantis, I think we better off if he's, if he were to leave Florida, he would be better off leaving as a VP instead of president, at least for 2024. Is is this Ron DeSantis's first or second term as governor of the state of Florida? So this year would be for his second term. Okay. So let's see. When is his reelection again? So if he were to stay governor of Florida, it would run until 2026. Okay. Now, it's interesting, if I'm remembering correctly from our last discussion, a governor can only do like eight out of 12 years. So he might actually be able to use it as a break and run for presidency and then, or, or vice presidency or whatever and then come back and be the governor again because you've got to take a four-year hiatus before you can run again. Maybe. I mean, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure all the, the election laws yep. in place, uh, especially in the state of Florida, but I, I would – Go ahead. I was going to say, I think what you were saying, though, about Trump uh, got nothing left to lose. I think they would have learned a lot, too. I think he left a lot of people in the positions that they were in. And I think that he's realized that that was a mistake because they obstructed a lot of what he did. Right. If you are actively working against people who are supposed to be working with you, that really slows down your agenda. Now, in general, I find it that I am I'm really of the belief that the less the government can get done at the federal level, the better we are. Right. Like, I I think that they've got some very specific mandates. We're supposed to have, you know, kind of this general unitedness. And the federal government's job largely is to defend us from international threats. But as far as, you know, cramming down any type of legislation, whether it be through executive orders or through the federal level of Congress, like, I feel like the less they can do, the better. So that's, I, I think that he would come back and be a lot more. Not holding his punches back so much. Yeah, he'd be seasoned. Like you said, nothing left to lose because he can't run again. But also I think that he's learned, right? Because it's kind of like, you know, at least in when I did my master's program, my first year I was kind of, you know, figuring out what I was going to be doing with coaching this team. And then by the second year I found my stride and then my program was over and I had to go somewhere else. Whereas when I did my PhD, I had four years. And so I had the first year to learn the ropes. And then, you know, I get like three years, to like really hone my craft. I think you can kind of use that mm-hmm. to uh, you know, apply that concept to your second term 
as president, right? If you've got four years to learn everything, then your your last four years, you know, you're 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 in theory supposed to be making a little more headway. Although you do get into the lame duck presidency, right, where he's got nothing <laughs> left he can do, can't run for re-election, re et cetera. But yeah, I think he would have had a different perspective going into it. For sure. And speaking of uh, going into it a second time, we're going to do a quick recap from last week's discussion uh, because we had a great discussion. It came up with a lot of compromises just between the two of us. And we made a comment concerning, imagine if there's like Marcelo uh, in the room or Josh from the Alt-Left podcast in the room, just how the diversity of thought and the ins and outs that people can think of that would have happened if it was just more than the two of us um, and you and I very closely aligned ideologically speaking. But last week we went, we went over congressional term limits and we came up with one of the few compromises we came up with was that at least we were going to have the states decide whether or not how long they should, how to handle term limits while at the same time have at least a 20 year cap. I think you and I, Back, uh, bounced around a little bit with the idea as far as maybe 24, but uh, I think you and I ended up settling on 20 year cap. And uh, I just want to go ahead. That, and that was 20 years on the federal level. They come back and serve state and local, right? Was that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we also compromised as far as the president that once the president serves his time in office, um, whether it's one term or two terms, uh, he cannot be eligible to run for an executive position back at the state that he came from. Um, that's also something we compromised on. So all in all, good discussion. But we did miss – I think we did miss a few points. But um, I want—I don't know if you have any missed points you want to bring up right now. I'll let you take the floor. <laughs> no, I, I – uh... Ken, I don't make mistakes, no, Kenny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Never wrong. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, I think that I got most of my thoughts out there. Um, there was nothing really burning in the back of my mind. I was like, oh, man, I wish I would have said that last week. But why don't you – I'll probably come up with something as you say stuff too. So why don't why don't you tell me what you were thinking you would wish you would have said and then – Yeah, we really flushed out. I mean, we really flushed out. So this recap and uh, yeah, going right. over that's missed what, points. That's what organization does to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As far as uh, missed points, I mean, this probably be like a 10-minute part of this show, to be honest. But uh, one thing I did think of right after about a – I want to say like yesterday, actually, I thought of this as far as like making sure there's a – make sure there's in the amendment process anyway to ensure that those who serve their 20 years for that – uh, federal official, they let's say, for example, they go back. Let's go. Let's go use Obama for example again. Okay, let's say Obama goes back to Illinois. Illinois votes like, no, sorry, kick rocks. Uh, I want to be sure there's there's a amendment pro amendment I should say in place that ensures that Obama can't just go to another state and claim residency there and then try to run for office uh, just for the sake of being in power. That's something I thought of yesterday so you're saying that you you want to have the states determine whether or not a president can come back and serve at like the state or local levels so we're talking like state senate state house of right. representatives we already right. said that there would in theory in our world be an amendment that says that they cannot serve in the executive or in this case the governor's branch of the state but you're right. saying that basically they would only be eligible for which 
update, the one that they went to before the presidency? Like, how would you? Yeah, the one. Yeah, the one. That? So I was thinking and making ensuring that they can only work at the st- local level or state level at the state that they originated from when they started their twenty-year career, essentially. And I want to make sure that they can't okay. just bounce to another state that actually allows them to uh, serve even at a, you know, well, we already agreed at no executive position, but you shouldn't know, not even president, not just president, but just anyone in the federal level. Like if you're a Senate and you go back to your state in Kentucky and Kentucky says, go kick rocks. I don't think it's, I don't think the person who originated from Kentucky should be able to go to Tennessee, for example, where Tennessee says, yeah, you can go ahead and serve here. I was wondering if we should just make it a federal amendment then that they can't go back and serve, period. Because otherwise you're going to get some people from some states who get to go back and serve and others who don't. And I'm torn because I like to delegation to the states, but at the same time, I'm also concerned that some people will make some like super politically strategic moves. Like I'm going to, I'm not going to start my career in Illinois because I can't do it. So I'm going to move to Tennessee and I'm going to live there as long as I need to. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I don't know. I feel like that that's, that's a big obstacle for them that it might not even be worth their time, but it's still an obstacle. They might try to get around. I don't know. Uh, did I just like destroy the 20 year cap from last week? <laughs> no, not the twenty year cap. I meant Or the... is it return returning back to serve at your local politics. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking out loud. I don't I don't think you destroyed it. I suppose that even if you've got people who can or you know, go back and serve their state. I don't know. I feel like I have never even though presidents are currently not limited, I've never seen them go back and serve. You know, like what what do the presidents do? They they look terrible by the time they get out of their eighth (laughs) year and they usually go into some form of retirement usually it's where they start you know selling their name and their branding right we've seen this largely from like the clintons and the obamas a little bit of the bushes although i feel like george w bush went and did more with painting uh than he did (laughs) with politics and writing as far as i'm aware so i don't know let's yeah, I'm not going to change my answer. We'll go with the 20-year cap, but it also is decided by the states whether or not they want someone who served as president to be able to come back to their state. Okay, that's fair. I mean, personally, personally, I would say at least make it in cons- ingrained in the Constitution that you, have, you can only serve back to the state you originated from when you first started the 20-year cap. Um I guess it's one of those things as far as like, do you trust the human nature enough to not want to go to someone to not try to look for that loophole? And I don't, and me, my instinct is I don't trust human nature. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I, I don't, I'm doing this series because I don't trust human nature. I, I think that you know, politicians <laughs> are a special type of weasel. Like I, I'm naturally distrusting of people and humanity in general, but, Especially so of politicians. So, no, I don't trust them. Yeah, maybe. And so the other point that I didn't think about um, is when I was actually watching a Tim Pool podcast where they're talking about a convention of states, which that was honestly the first mainstream 
conversation period that I've heard. When I say mainstream, it's my idea of mainstream, like Tim Pool, Joe Rogan. I feel like CNN, Fox News, like they're becoming dinosaurs. They're not really mainstream anymore. But um, but Tim Pool actually had one of the had like Rick Santorum and uh, Heckler on there, who was I guess in in charge of this push for to have a convention of states which is awesome that apparently we're really freaking close to actually having a convention in states and it's terrifying Congress and the federal government because they literally can't do anything about it. Um, But one thing he mentioned as far as the congressional term limits, they actually brought up an interesting point that I think you and I could probably get over real quickly and probably agree on as far as the federal in the federal cap that we agreed on. Should that be including any federal uh, member, whether it's a cabinet member or the staff from Congress, should they all be included in this 20-year cap? I think I'm a little confused. Can can you ask the question again, Ken? Yeah, so Tim Pool on the show, they were talking about congressional term limits, but they also wanted term limits or limit the amount of time of federal members can serve. So whether it's like a cabinet member, like let's say Dr. Fauci, for example, right? Like limit his time, how long he can be in this position kind of deal or any staffers from Congress. Um, And I'm asking, do you think that should also be included in your 20 year cap? Okay. So you're not just talking about, you know, Senate and Congress. Now you're talking about like any federal service now my question then would would be would that include let's say like fbi agents because like technically they're working for the government or or are you just are you talking about well in my world leadership (laughs) let's go with upper leadership because in my world the fbi doesn't exist right now (laughs) okay (laughs) in my in my idealistic world i'm in i'm in the boat right now of abolishing the fbi but um, but let's go with the latter of what you just mentioned, the higher up, higher up officials, like uh, like people like Dr. Fauci kind of deal. Uh, do you think there should be, you think the cap should include those individuals as well? I don't know. I, I, my, my initial knee-jerk reaction would be no. Um, and, and my main reasoning for that is I, I feel like I don't know. I, I like a certain amount of freedom for people. And I think that there is something to be said. And we talked a little bit about this last week. There is something to be said about the knowledge that you gain through the experience. And you can only get experience by having a certain number of years racked up. I'm worried that if we just said, yeah, 20 years, then you wouldn't get the crossovers of like, let's, and I know you're not talking about this specifically, but think for a moment about how much value we place on the commander in chief having previous military experience, particularly when we were in war times, right? We, we haven't seen that lately, but we did, especially, you know, around and shortly after World War One, World War Two, the Vietnam War. And I'm worried that if we start imposing those types of limitations that you won't have the knowledge, the know-how, the experience, and even the connections that you need to get things done. Because, I mean, even just for uh, as average Joe Schmoes or Jane Schmoes, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, 
you need to know people to get things done. And, you know, when you get a good old boy system or you get the lifers in Congress, which has now been called the swamp, there's problems <laughs> that accompany that. But I am worried that you might reach a point through that type of limitation where Congress or, you know, with whether they go from Congress to serving other capacities or vice versa, that you'll get people who don't have the experience they need to truly be effective. Now, I, I know that there's an argument against that, too. So that's why I'm a little torn here. But I think I'm more concerned about people who don't know what they're doing, trying to lead the country than I am about those people skipping around or even people from Congress going off and doing that. That's a good rationale. Um, yeah, because we did go over as far as what the reasons why the Congress or Congress, why the founding fathers originally said no term limits to Congress is because they wanted that experience. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci is like the first person I think of. <laughs> he's been there way too long. And yeah, but like also he's fallen out of relevance. I mean, he keeps trying or like they keep trying to make him relevant, but he's really not anymore, right? Like he had his, his rise, like nobody know. Knew. I mean, most people I'll say, not nobody. Most people didn't know who Fauci was outside of the last, you know, couple of years that COVID's been dragging on. It, it's Fair. really, it, it's just been there. So, I mean, I don't think that Fauci is going to be my reason for anything. I think he's irrelevant. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that he would be my reasoning to limit that type of potential for experience for me anyway. That's the way that I would handle that. But at the same time, though, do you want a good old boy in there where he has his connections with the president, for example, um, that lets him keep his job? And I'm not just talking about Dr. Fauci, but I'm just taking like a Dr. Fauci-like scenario at that level. Because um, I'm a, forget, I mean, career, I'm against career politicians, but I'm also against uh, the lifelong bureaucrats who eventually gain the system to their advantage and use it to their advantage. And so... I agree with you in the experience, but maybe I can. Maybe I would compromise with you and say maybe let Congress handle that. And maybe if they want to like write legislation that states that you know those official members can only serve a certain amount of period, they can, or that's their limit. But as far as maybe ingrained in the Constitution, like I. I would let that go, I think, as a compromise as far as constitutionally ingrained, including them in that 20-year ban. So let me ask you this. Outside of – I think I had a phrase this. Outside of them just being around forever and ingrained in the system, what is the harm that you currently see to those people being lifers outside of the Senate, outside the House of Representatives, and the president isn't relevant because the president uh, – the office of the president – has limits on it already so what do you think are the harms of these people just perpetually leeching off of the system today they would come up with policies and advise presidents or advise the president on policies that are not based on reality and they would be so out of touch with reality because they've been in that there so long that I mean, Dr. Fauci, for example, like he hasn't practiced medicine in over 20 years, for example, and he calls himself Dr. Fauci. So still calls himself a doctor. And oh, you so don't lose your, you don't lose your degree. I, I'll fight you to well, the nail on that because when I finish my PhD, I will be doctor. Now, doctorate of philosophy, 
but it doesn't go away <laughs> even if I left. I have that forever. Yeah, but, but the med- <laughs> yeah, but but the thing is at the same time as far as if you're if you're always up there, you're not you're not with the people, you're not gonna understand how policies affect these people and how your uh your guidelines, for example, affects the average Joe or Jane. So for well, me exactly correct. You 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 can lose touch for sure. Think I don't think you can. I think that's the most likely. I mean, it's probably like ninety percent of the time that ends up happening with these bureaucrats to stay up there and serve pro- over twenty years at least. Because um, so I would venture to say, like, there has to be some kind of limit as how long they can be up there, especially if they're unelected officials. <laughs> um, sure. So and, go ahead. Well. For me, the the main issue I have with Congress and the Senate droning on and on and on and being lifers there is because they are writing policy or they've just given up on writing policy, which honestly, how many members of Congress are actually writing policy? Not many. They usually pass it off to their underlings to write it up and then they just vote on it. But they're actually pulling the levers. They are effectuating changes for better or for worse or not doing anything. And then, you know, then we put a fire under their butts. But for these lifers who are not in a congressional position, I I understand what you're saying about, you know, they, they can influence the president, but they are not the president, right? Like Fauci didn't get to write legislation. He got to make recommendations much like, you know, pick any number one of these people who have been a lifer there. They're not necessarily able to effectuate policy they just get to advise so for me i don't i I don't see that as being quite as damaging i think what you said about them losing touch is 100 percent correct i agree with you on that i just don't think that they have the capability of doing as much damage given their position and because of that i don't know my perspective is that it would be more damaging to not have these people to advise Right, because you know Donald Trump would be a great example of this. He got in; he had no idea, for the most part at least, what the actual political landscape was like. Uh, what what made him attractive to a lot of people was that he was not one of the politicians. But that also made it very difficult for him to get anything done because he didn't know the process. So he relied very heavily on these people that he appointed or that went in there with them or that were in these positions and their knowledge. I mean, I guess I'm thinking of what what would we have had if we had Donald Trump in <laughs> office who was very limited and then we also didn't have any of these lifers who had experience of here's how things are done. I guess I'm trying to be very careful that we don't blow up the system for the sake of blowing it up. Right. By definition, conservatives prefer to conserve, which means that they like slower change and they often look at this as there's a reason for the system. We're not saying everything's good. We're certainly not saying it's perfect, but we're not saying blow it up versus progressives would say blow it up. I see a problem. Blow it up. Start over. (laughs) I'm worried that if we impose that, then now we're going down the path of. I just don't like that these people are lazy and that I'm paying my tax dollars towards them. Right. And like, and I think that's a valid gripe. However, I don't think personally that's a reason to nuke that part of the system. I'm all about nuking Congress's ability to stay in there for life because they're supposed to be doing change. And I think that nuking that opportunity for them to sit there 
means that they can no longer be complacent because they can be voted out or if they just try to write it out, they will be gone. So if they genuinely care about change, they'll try to get it done in that 20-year stint. But also it means that you know we can't have Nancy Pelosi just being like, yep, like she literally said, you put you know a glass of water in my district or AOC district and you put a you slap a D on it, it's going to get elected. I think that you're going to, if you have to have fresh blood every single, you know, every so often, I think that that means that people will look more at policy and less of, oh, yeah, I know Nancy Pelosi because she's been there for 97,000 years and she's a Democrat. So I know that she's going to vote against Republicans. I think that we actually have to look at, you know, because how many times have you gone to the polls other than, you know, the last couple of years when we've been doing this podcast, right, before you really gave a crap about politics? How many times did you go and just say, oh, yeah, I know Mitch McConnell's name in the state of Kentucky because he's been there forever and you don't look at the policy? I know that was me. I mean, maybe that wasn't you, Ken, but like I feel like the majority of Americans only do the name recognition of the incumbents. And that's why they're there forever. So that's why I want to nuke that. I don't I don't care quite as much about the about the lifers and the other portions. Hmm. Well, they are. A, there are part of the executive branch, and so we won't get into the they executive are. branch today. We have that will be when we talk about the president and the whole cabinet members down the road. So we'll come back to that some other time. Um, but since we are on the topic of Congress, there's a few times last week where you now were walking a fine line from jumping in from congressional term limits to talking about pay. And I know you're really interested in talking about the benefits aspect. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So let's go ahead and get into that. That's going to be the main topic for today, really. It's just the pay system because, um, listen, I think to a sane individual, you would think that Congress should have something to hold them accountable from giving themselves bonuses. Um, And there is some kind of measurement in the Constitution where the bonuses they give themselves or the raises they give themselves – doesn't take effect until the next congressional session, I guess. But that's as, like as far as it goes. Doesn't really get too into it. Um, now, when it comes to the founding fathers and their thoughts about this, is again one of those things our founding fathers debated heavily on. And any point that you, any point that you and I bring up, that was one of those points that the founding fathers brought up. But it's one of those things again where they ultimately decided to go in another direction. So Ben Benjamin Franklin, for example, he didn't want Congress to be paid at all. Stating that if Americans, you know, were to have Congress, Congress members up there who did get paid, that they would be become bold and violent in their personalities and engage in selfish pursuits. Well, even though uh, at the time that wasn't maybe it wasn't the case, I think that portion has aged pretty well. <laughs> but the reason why they ended up going the other way is because they felt as though if they made it to where. Uh, Congress could not be paid, those public service could not p- be paid and, or be compensated, then the only people who would be able to afford to be a congressional member would be those who are rich. So maybe they thought there would be like a, only the Bill Gates of the world could afford to be a co- congressional member. And that's what they were worried about. And perhaps th- that was an overcorrection that you brought up last week as far as no turn limits. Um for the sake of having experience, perhaps that was also a overcorrection. Now, um, from 1789 to 1850, the pay was absolutely terrible. They're making a few bucks daily. Uh, 
their starting salary up until 1815 was $1,500, $1, which is a year. Uh, that's what a salary is. Sorry. Anyways, um, which that would be the equivalent of a low enlisted pay of 22000 a year. So very terrible. And it was low enough for them to actually get jobs. And it stayed that way. And in 1935, Again, not really high. It's only $10,000 a year at the time. But inflation calculators suggest that that would have been the equivalent of $200,000, which is what today's congressional members get paid for pretty much um, more closer to $200,000 uh, $200, a year. Uh, the leaders, such as the House Speaker, Senate Majority Leader, Minority Leaders, they're uh, pay is around $170,000 a year, and that's not taken into consideration. They gave themselves a 21% bonus in the Ukraine foreign aid package, which next week, if we get through this uh, in one piece, we'll actually be, go be going into the single bill issues and the that, that whole process, so that'll be good. But right for this week, Ryan, let's keep on track. Let's stay on track. And focus on the pay stuff. Um, so that's pretty much it as far as the pay aspect. There's some concerns as far as they're being paid too much. But there's also concerns about their benefits, which Ryan, that's something you really wanted to harp on last week. So I'll let you give I'll give you the floor for that one if you want to give us the inner the gritty details of the benefits they have. Well, sure. So one of them is called franking, which is basically they don't have to pay for the they don't have to pay out of their own pocket anyway for any of, you know, those stupid, annoying little reelect me You know, every time that they're out for reelection. Like, they yeah. don't have to pay for the postage for that. They've got to pay to print them and things, but they don't have to pay for the postage. Now, that that franking is only if I'm remembering correctly, it's only supposed to be for like official business right that's pertinent for their duties does that get I mean it gets abused sure uh, they're not supposed <laughs> to now they also get i mean just being a member of congress you get special carve outs for like dental vision and medical you get your uh you know your your you get some kind of an allowance basically, which is supposed to offset. So like in addition to making about, what did you say? 72, 75,000 a year. Oh, are you talking about their salary? Yeah. 220,000 a year salary. Let's see here. 174 is what I meant. Sorry. So let's oh, see. Rank for the file. house speaker. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. House speaker Nancy Pelosi makes 225 roughly uh, 174,000 per year. They also get to retire, like if you serve an appropriate number to be eligible, like a certain number of terms to be eligible, you can make like 80% of your salary. So they're making like, you know, 80,000, let's say a year when they're not doing anything. So they retire and they make $80,000 a year. So they got really good retirement options. They've got special 401k. It's not quite a 401k, but they've got those options as well. You know, the Capitol Hill has all types of dining services. 
And I don't know if all of their food is free, but I know a lot of times they maybe their stuff gets catered or they've got lobbyists that are paying for their food or, you know, like or or you know, <laughs> like, I mean, you've got all of these lunches like I mean, they, they even have stuff that's like a cafeteria where like they probably don't have to pay to go in. Like it's there's a lot of a lot of perks and benefits to being in Congress. Now, personally, I'm not opposed to Congress making a salary. I just don't think that they need to make one hundred and seventy thousand dollars a year plus, you know, expense accounts, travel, you know, <laughs> compensated, all of that. It's like, okay, well, you know, I've got to mail stuff. How come I don't get to do that for free? Like, you know, because, right. and it's also not for free. It means that the tax dollars go towards that. They just don't have to pay for it. And that's something that we need to remember: is that nothing is free. It came out of somebody else's pocket from the fruit of their labor. They are making way more, well above the median salaries for even the mean salaries for what their districts are are making. You know, if you're at the the, the state level, um, it's it's just a lot of <laughs> it's a lot of money to also then turn around and not even show up for your roll call vote, right? Like the only time that these people have to show up is when roll is called because then you get the yays and the nays. Other than that, they do more like representatives of the representatives, right? Congress Thanks, is supposed to be representing the people. We are a representative democracy. We are a republic. You elect them, they go and serve you. That way you don't have to go in every time that you know a vote is called on every piece of legislation. What they're doing, though, is like, okay, we know that the Republicans have fewer people. They have a minority in the House and the Senate right now, so not everybody even shows up. It's ridiculous. So they're being paid that much, 175000 on average for just your average member of Congress, to then not even show up and do their job. They're not writing legislation. They're certainly not reading it. Now, sometimes they're not even given the time to read it, and that's a whole other problem. But they're being paid massive amounts of money, in most cases, to do nothing. Now, one of the, the benefits to being paid, you mentioned that they had to work side jobs back in the day. Mm. You want your Congress to be free to be able to focus on doing legislation, like to do their job. You also don't want, like you had mentioned a little bit ago there, Ken, you, you want them – you don't want the position to exclusively be open to the Bill Gates of the world, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world, like the people who come from family wealth. So being compensated fairly for your time, I think, is important. I'm not saying do away with all of the, the salary altogether. I don't think it needs to be strictly a service. But I think that in the spirit that you are serving your country and this is a privilege and that you need to remember that you are accountable to we the people, I don't think you need to make $225,000 a year for you to turn around and only pass legislation that raises your bonus so that you can offset inflation. Well, I am. So this is where you and I will break a little bit, I guess, because I don't really mind the benefits so much as much as long as their salaries are within reason. That's my that's my bigger deal. Um, that said, these are my proposals as far as and this is another thing, though, too, as far as. Like you said, like our taxpayer dollars are paying for them. They're we're paying for their salaries, and if we're paying them, then shouldn't we be the ones in charge of whether or not they get a raise, or, uh, or should they just be able to give themselves raises whenever they feel like it? And I feel as though that 
lack of check of balance has allowed them to go ahead and pursue this. That vagueness, if you will, has allowed this to happen to where, you know, they don't, they've lived up to Benjamin Franklin's fears at this point where they've become leeches in the system and they've become very arrogant and cocky and brazen in their legislation to allow themselves, despite the will of the people and the people in the districts or the people in their state saying, Hey, we don't like this. Don't pass this. They do it anyway. Um, to say that the fact that they, there's no check of balance to hold their checkbooks and say, Hey, listen to us or you're going to get a cut or going to not only maybe not, maybe not necessarily a cut, but at least, um, at least not definitely not a pay increase at the very least. So that's my biggest ordeal. Um, go ahead. I was going to say, I'm, I'm with you hundred percent on that one, especially because what they voted for recently, especially in the misnomer bill that they just passed the inflation reduction act sure as hell is not going to reduce inflation it's going to make your dollar not go as far right that's that's the definition of inflation here and you're you're seeing them vote for these garbage policies without any regard for the consequences now that might be in part because they're trying to get an agenda that they want through it might be in part because some of them are trying, you know, especially like the Democrats on the left, are promising their constituents these types of policies so they're following through. But I also think a part of it is that they are not beholden to the same salary restrictions that we are. When I go to my boss and I'm like, hey, I want a, you know, a pay raise, they're like, LOL, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Versus these members of Congress get to say, all right, raise your hands if you want to increase the pay. It's like, well, yeah, no shit. They're all going to raise their hand and vote for that. Uh, now, some members of Congress turn down the pay increase, but in my opinion, those are the idiots. Like, you know, it's like you should not even <laughs> – you should not have the option. So I agree with you there. Congress should not have the ability to raise it. I think that it should go to the people. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you another reason that needs to be the case. Imagine Congress coming to us right now and saying, hey, we want to raise. They would be laughed out of the country. <laughs> so I think that's another incentive, another check on them to do their freaking job and actually pass legislation that will benefit the country. Because I'm still not going to vote for Congress to get a raise, but I think that they'll have a better shot if they're having to, you know, be accountable to us to get that raise. And so, like, bottom line, what I want to see, I want them to suffer with the rest of us. If I can't outpace the inflation they've created, they sure as hell should not be able to either. <laughs> for sure. I mean, and there's also this unspoken or unofficial benefit that they also have i will go back going back to the benefits the insider trading <laughs> uh, where they basically get the scoop before the next uh day in the stock market whether or not certain stocks whether they're gonna crash or they're gonna skyrocket they're gonna see yeah. a rise and they can get ahead of the they can get ahead of the curve it's not and, even a scoop though it's it's they're they're passing legislation that shapes the economy. That's like, you know, if <laughs> if I eat Mexican food, I can predict that I'm probably you know going to have a stomach ache. You know, if or if if I eat too much food in general, like that, <laughs> that's like, you know, you don't have to be Rain Man to be able 
to make that type of a prediction when they pass a policy that's going to heavily restrict the ability for uh, U.S. companies to be able to drill. Well, probably a good time to dump your oil based stock at that point then. Right. Or like if if they're going to pass legislation that gives incentives to any company like automobile company that will do something with uh, EVs, electric vehicles, probably a good time to invest in Tesla. So like it, it's not even the scoop. It's that they literally get to shape the legislation that affects the economy. And because they know what's going to pass and when it's going to pass. And unless you're a super nerd like me, who's massively pissed off, <laughs> who's tracking congressional bills, you probably don't know what's going through. Now, you've also got the part that, you know, it's a little more of the even, you know, further down the road of insider trading, like what Nancy Pelosi deals with, where, you know, she's she's got it seems, you know, there, there was a whole page dedicated to tracking Nancy Pelosi's stock so that you could do better. And that page got suspended. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was on Twitter, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a massive problem. I, I think it is downright despicable when Congress gets to pass legislation that then affects the economy and they get to profit off of it. And they also vote for a raise on top of that. <laughs> exactly. So you got multiple issues going on there. Now, one of the solutions, if we want to talk solutions real quick on that, uh, we actually, this was one thing that pretty much everybody on Between the Liars wound up um, agreeing on is that, yeah, no, <laughs> no shit. Congress shouldn't be able uh, to be investing in the stock market. One of the solutions that we kicked around then that I would still be in favor of is I'm not going to say Congress can't invest in stocks. I would say that they have to put their money into like a blind trust, which think about it as like, um, you know, kind of like Congress can kind of pool their money into something that is invested on their behalf so that they do not know what it's going to be invested in and they just have to pass policies, right? It's, it's, it's blinded much like the way we're flying is blind, right? You, you, you don't know. You can study the stock markets and you can try to figure stuff out, but it is up to chance. It, what's not up to chance is when you're going to put uh, $400 billion into subsidizing other types of energy and cracking down on carbon-based energy doesn't take a genius to figure out probably where each of those is going to turn. So were, so would they not be able to directly, let's say, buy Apple stocks if they wanted to while they're in Congress? Is that what you're saying? Right. So think of it as like, uh, I'm trying to remember, it's not a Roth IRA, but there, there are, uh, let me hold for one second while I try to find this well, term. Come back to me. Yeah, so for me, I guess when it comes to that specifically, I just think about, I mean, personally, anyway, I personally don't mind them have, being able to trade stocks as long as it's not for their own person, as long as it's not behind the scenes and they make it, tr they provide that transparency for the American public to know. So it's like, if you have the down, if you have this power, then the people should also have the power to look in to see this as well, to know ahead of time. As far so they can also take advantage of the uh, the stock market per se. I personally don't. That's my. I guess that's my biggest issue personally, more than anything. I like your idea though, as far as putting in a blind trust. I think that's a way to ensure, like, because at the end of the day, they can say they're going to provide the transparency, but does, do, will they actually enforce it? And ninety nine percent of the time, they don't enforce. So they may give you like half truths per se on certain things. And so 
putting in a blind trust, I could see it. I could see that working as long as, as it's a third party and they have absolutely no connection to that uh, company that they're putting the blind trust in and they don't know anybody. Maybe, maybe they make the blind trust come from a totally different state they've never resided in or they ever stepped foot in um, just to avoid that conflict of interest to where they can't just like call Joe Schmo and say, hey, Joe, um, I'm not saying to do your job, but we just passed legislation to incentivize Apple to go ahead and start building more more of those iPhones. Wink, wink. I'm not telling you to do your job. <laughs> <laughs> That's my thing, I guess. So that would be like the flower would see with that. No, I, I agree. And I think what you said hit it on the head, talking about how they shouldn't be able to have that type of an advantage coming out of it because then, yeah, you're going to you're, – you're, you're, you're not – you're not in the same boat as the rest of us. And this is also true because you, I mentioned earlier, it's not what you know, it's who you know as well. So, right. I mean, I would not even limit this to, say, Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi's husband should also not be allowed to invest. <laughs> I would say anyone who is in Congress and their families should have to invest if they're going to through a blind trust. Because Nancy Pelosi's doing this song and dance right now where she's like, well, I've never, you know, told my husband that. But, my, you know, it's like, well, that's that's BS, you know, like <laughs> you're, you're definitely sharing privileged information at that point. So even though she's like, well, I've never invested, it's like, yeah, but your husband has. It's the same thing, you know, and that's that's just not the way that it should be. I can see that um, at the same time, though, like a part of me is thinking that's almost it's a little unfair for the families. At the same time, though, it's I guess just one of those opportunity costs. If you want to serve Congress, the family is going to have to put up with it kind of deal. So how far down the family tree would you say uh, would be affected by this? Would it just be their immediate family? Or are you saying like anyone that's related to Nancy Pelosi, for example, they cannot participate in the stock market? I would say absolutely no one in the immediate family should be allowed to do anything other than a blind trust. I would also say that I'm heavily considering limiting anyone who is close enough to benefit from their political office, right? So when Nancy Pelosi's husband literally gets pulled over by the police and we're, you know, when I was here and it was pretty heavily speculated that he was drunk driving and, you know, <laughs> waves his basically his privilege card and then Nancy Pelosi is like, well, I don't have to come down and testify because privilege, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> if you are close enough to benefit to their connections, I think that you also don't get to complain if you get this setback, right? Like if my cousin is a member of Congress and I get the connections, then I also shouldn't be able to invest. And that would also, you know, I think limit, because, like, here's the thing. If I say, yeah, your husband can't, they're like, well, you didn't say my cousin couldn't do this. So, <laughs> then, you know, then I just pass that off to, you know, <laughs> cousin Jerry or, you know, whoever is just, you know, he or she happens to get the information now. So I would just say, you know, limit it to definitely immediate family. I would probably say just anyone who's, you know, cousins, aunts, uncles, like the whole nine yards until you start getting, like, the second cousin once removed, like, I don't think your children, grandchildren, grandparents should be able to invest. By all means, invest in a blind trust because, like, you already have stock options like that. Like, if I'm not mistaken, like a Roth IRA is you're basically investing in 
in like a bundle of stocks in the market, you're diversifying your portfolio, which is kind of what a blind trust is anyway. You're just, you know, it's just that there's a little more collaborative teamwork. I mean, hell, if we can't get Congress united on issues, get them united on the fact that they all want the economy to thrive because they're all in it or their pension suffers together. Like they're all in it together, better or worse. <laughs> I guess for me, because for me, it would be kind. Of, that would get kind of get tricky at the same time. As far as like, well, how can you tell which family members are not immediate that are really close to? Um, you basically have to do like a background check. Well, I guess, you know, who could families. figure that out? The eighty-seven billion dollars they just put into the IRS, they could figure it out. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, true. Um, <laughs> they just hired what eighty-seven million agents or something with the call to be able entire, to use deadly an, force. An entire football stadium. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you <laughs> Congress, <laughs> let's see how much Congress likes putting $87 billion towards the IRS when they have restrictions and now they're going to be enforced. Oh, well, of course, part of their legislation that will be covering next week, obviously, as far as, you know, the nature of bills and everything like that. Yep. Um, you know, they're going to get tried in those bills or laws are going to write themselves an exemption. So they don't have to worry about <laughs> the IRS agents. So yes. they don't have to worry about the IRS agents. Um, but let's kind of switch back to the payment, not payment, but the salary portion yeah. and the pay. Because, I mean, all that aside, those are reasons why Congress should not have the salary they have, nor should they have the right to rate, give themselves bonuses. It makes no sense. Um, so these are the proposals that I have written down on my Subsec, folks, if you want to check that out, it's the under uh, sub com, And the title is Smaller Government Congress. And it's in this section talking about pay. And what I have here is first point, congressional delegates from both chambers must possess and maintain a profession outside the congressional chambers. They are forbidden from practicing as lobbyists as a secondary job. Delegates cannot be paid by lobbyists as a means by, of constructing a secondary job either. A profession outside the congressional realms include anything that serves the public through private, the private enterprise system, the defense department, healthcare, or academia. Point two, any citizen who aspires to run for office must have a minimum of 16 years without any association with lobbying to minimize conflict of interest. Point three. Congressional-based salary must not exceed the average accumulated secondary salaries of each delegate. As part of the electoral process enshrined in the Constitution, the individual citizen will have the power to vote in the ballot box on whether Congress has earned a pay increase, stagnation, or decrease. But the increase or decrease of the base salary shall not exceed the inflationary. So, uh, so let's say, for example, they decide to do a decrease. Uh, they can't just... Uh, they're not they're not going to see their salary like see significant job as long as within the reflection rate. And if they were trying to give themselves or if the voters decide to uh, give them to give them a raise because they're doing a good job somehow, um, then they would only go up as far as the inflation rate. So they have like these ridiculous numbers, like 21 percent, 30 percent pay increase uh, to kind of hold them in check. And then the enforcement of this amendment shall take effect to presidential cycles after this passage. But. That's really the end of that. That was the nitty gritty portion. So Ryan, go ahead and tear that down as you wish or please. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, so I would say one just to the whole, you know, you can you can decrease their salary like that. Or how often did you say that they would go up for review, basically? Based on the election year. So if your senator is running, is your, if there's an open seat in the Senate that year or there's an election for the Senate seat in your state that year, then they get to vote on it. And same thing with the, for the House. I mean, every two years. Uh, they would vote on it as far as whether or not their district members uh, went ahead, earned a pay increase. So, yeah. So I, I would say one of the biggest issues with that could be that, let's say you're running for office and I was the one whose seat is up for re-election. So you and I are running head to head against each other. Hell yeah. I'm the MAGA person. <laughs> <laughs> then what happens is people are reacting to how I did in Congress and taking it out. Let's say I lose on you. So for example, let's say I did an abysmal job. I put us in a recession. And so then let's say I get voted out and then you get voted in and they get to vote on whether or not there's a salary increase, decrease, or it stays the same. If they're really pissed, they'll probably vote to decrease it. So then you're walking into a decrease and you haven't even been in Congress yet. So <laughs> I, my concern is that that wouldn't, that aside from being a lot of things to vote on and potentially muddying the waters, I don't think you're really punishing the right people. I, you know, maybe to tweak that a little bit, maybe the person who is out of Congress, their pension options should be, you know, going down. I don't know. Um, or, I mean, I would even just say maybe just not – we fix congressional salaries and then they can never raise them. And the only way they could ever possibly get raised is if the people raise them so that, let's say, 100 years down the road, God willing, this country is still standing. And then, like, oh, <laughs> guess what? Cost of living is really terrible now. We need to raise the pay than they could, but I, I don't want it, you know, to be a constant or even fairly regular option. I want Congress to have a fixed salary and not be voted on. And I think that if the people are going to continue to vote on something, I don't know. I think that I'm more concerned about them voting on people who are going to do a good job and then letting them take out their frustrations by just not putting the person back in the office or replacing them instead of also penalizing the person after so th th those are my initial thoughts on that so let me ask you something real quick just as a reminder refresher how often do we have to fill out the census bureau i actually don't know i think it's like every 10 years or something like that right i can do a quick ye old google if you hold on just one second because i'm thinking maybe an alternative to what I just mentioned is include that in the Census Bureau as part of the filling out portion. And so they're not necessarily voting on whether or not on the specific member, let the specific member um, just vote, let the voters decide whether or not they want to keep that individual to remain in Congress. And then in the Census Bureau, they decide whether or not. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, and then the business, and then with, so within the business bureau, then the voter can decide whether or not, because uh, that's a very general, broad statement, right? As far as uh, the questions are the same with everyone. They're not asking you specific, your personal sentiment about uh, whether or not the tax increases 
are effective or not. They're like basic questions as far as uh, who you are as an individual, where you're from, what's your ethnicity, blah, blah, blah. And I think a good, another one we should, that could be included there maybe as an alternative is include, does Congress deserve a pay raise? And then based on the majority popular vote around the United States, they can decide whether or not Congress will get a pay increase, remain the same or decrease. And then from there, uh, for the next 10 years, they can't raise or decrease until the next Census Bureau. And also, they can, if it's an increase or a decrease, it cannot exceed the current inflation rates at the time they taste at the time the Census Bureau, at the time they finally decide they get the final numbers in. Well, let me let me ask you this, Ken. So anytime you do a bare majority like that, or even just like, let's say, I'm assuming you're talking about like 50 50% plus one person, right? Like just a, a super bare majority. And then it either gets raised, decreased, or kept the same. Tell me if I, I, I've misunderstood anything here. I got it. Do you want and do you trust the people of the U.S. enough to to let them keep making those shifts? Be- because, I don't know, I'm... Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that Congress <laughs> has ever done a good enough job that you would want your taxes raised to be able to give them a higher salary? Because, like, for me, the answer is hell no. no <laughs> not even close. Right. And, like, I understand that yours gives the option even for us to decrease it. And I, I understand that that's the point. But... I worry with how little some people pay attention to politics and then they still go and vote that they would be voting on something that they have no understanding of outside of maybe the way that the economy is is currently going. Because that really seems to drive how people vote, right? Like when Republicans are in charge and the economy is bad, then Republicans get voted out. And when Democrats are in power and the economy is going poorly they tend to be voted out that's been the trend for like the last like 25 plus years and i feel like people react more to the way that they feel in the situation than they do you know actually like merit based which is what i feel like yours calls for like have they done a good enough job i think a merit base is the way to go when it comes to whether or not congress should get them give themselves a raise i think if we're going to pick between letting the people decide versus letting Congress decide, even though the population, there's going to be people who vote who may not necessarily know, understand everything that's going on. I think I trust the people to decide more to vote on whether or not Congress deserves that pay raise versus Congress themselves. I think that's where I'm coming from. Because I don't, I I agree. Any anything is better than them being able to do it for themselves. I I agree. What what I'm thinking though is that we don't have to pick between those two options. Like the options here are whatever we want. They don't have to be Congress raises it or the people do. So why why if we make it a constitutional amendment that it is set at this rate and they cannot raise it, that can be changed if we get our you know our little calling of the states and then they they vote to amend it. I guess my question is. Why would you choose to let them have that option every 10 years instead of just letting them call it whenever they want a constitutional convention to raise, lower, or keep it the same? 
Because a constitutional amendment is a pain in the ass. And let's say, ten, <laughs> yeah, by, let's design. Say, <laughs> by design, I get that. And we've never had a constitutional, we haven't had a convention of states before. And right. so if Tim Pool, if the, if the project actually works, which it looks like it's about to actually work, and to have an actual convention of states, uh, it will be the first time in our country's 200 plus year history. And when it comes to the congressional way of amending the Constitution, I mean, if they want a pay increase, I mean, they can just go through the constitutional amendments. It's a lot easier for them to just do through the congressional means. And they can even con- change the Constitution to where they don't have to do with that limit anymore and have to uh, go through the constitutional pro- process just to give themselves a raise. And but so – you, you, you know that Congress cannot amend the Constitution without that being put out to like a true populist vote, right? Correct. It was sounding kind of like you were thinking, though, that Congress could get around the inability to raise it, though, just because they could pass a constitutional amendment. But maybe I misunderstood you. They still will. They still will. Probably a lot more. And for me, it's one of the things that's like... I- see on the television and it's you know what like almost have congress trying to give themselves a raise and justify why they raise i'd rather not have to deal with that as a voter personally and so it's one of those as far as i think i trust the people i I don't. I understand where you're coming from when it comes to the maybe someone may not be necessarily uh, educated enough, but I think it should be left to the people to decide whether or not, at the end of the day, they should be able to get a pay raise. And I don't think, I mean, let's say 20 years down the road, like inflation's way beyond their means, uh, way beyond what their salary can afford. And granted, like with by amendments, they would not be just working as Congress congressional members. Uh, they would have secondary jobs as well. But at the same time, should that have to should they have to wait? Should people have to wait that long to get a pay raise to accommodate the inflation rate? To me it doesn't seem economical. That's just me though. So you're it sounds like you're accounting for them having a second job as well, is that correct? Correct. Okay, so for where I was coming from, I was thinking that they don't need to have a second job. I mean, speaking as someone who's lived on a grad student stipend, I mean, you can live well below uh, (laughs) what most people think you can uh, as far as like what you actually need for your expenses, especially considering the fact that Congress has all of these perks and benefits, right? Like they, you know, (laughs) if, if your budget doesn't have to really account for food and other expenses, so long as you're in session, um, at least, you know, for the work hours of the day, I don't, Go ahead. I don't know that they like, I mean, if they want to work a second job, they can, but like, I wasn't planning on, you know, restricting their salary to like 25,000 a year, which you can technically even get by on that. You know, you're not going to live in the lap of luxury, but. Oh, I was thinking that I was thinking they're going right back there. If, uh, if the average medium out, if it's, if the minimum wage, like the people making the least amount of money is like around that 20 to 30 K a year, like enlisted, lower enlisted, like that should be their base salary starting off. 
period. They should have they should be forced to work a second job because if they work a second job, then they're forced to be and interact with the people around them. It shouldn't working for Congress. If you want Congress to, if you want the federal government to shrink in general, that in theory Congress shouldn't really be doing a whole lot to be honest. Like they should be there with a single mission, and there shouldn't be much to do because at the end of the day, the states are doing most of the legislating within their own with their people. At the state legislator level. So then before I get us off on, you know, specifics of salary and how we should calculate that, I do want to make sure that we finish the, you know, can they be raised or not? So it sounds like we're we're not at an impasse. We just disagree on whether or not the people should be able to amend it. It, it seems like. Yeah. At least you're in the position of the people should be able to decide through the constitutional amendment process. And I'm thinking through the ballot box, at least. That seems like the main disagreement. I try to I try to compromise the Census Bureau, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the Census Bureau is getting us. I think that that's answering a lot of the issues that I had with the original proposal. So I guess it, it still leaves the one, though, of let's say, you know, I'm up on the year that the Census Bureau is the doc the congressional pay, then you suffer from that. And I'm not saying that, you know, Congress needs to, you know, not suffer when they go in. I think they can have a little discomfort given their history and track record. But is this like it's an opportunity cost I think it's an opportunity cost I'm willing to take. Like is, if is Congress's if pay going to be universally docked or like my seat, my salary is docked. It would be universally position. It would be universally docked okay, in my world. Sure. Yeah, okay. my world, it would be universally docked. So for me, here's, it's one of those – go ahead. I was going to say, here's what I can give you. I could – if we're trying to compromise here and we're making a deal, I could give <laughs> you their ability to dock it, but I want to set parameters on how much they can raise and lower. Because I know you said that it can't outpace inflation, but let's say that you get like 30 years straight of pissed off people, which I'm assuming <laughs> will be the case, and then they just vote to continue docking it. How much can it be docked each time the Census Bureau comes up and they go to the ballot box? So every 10 years, every decade. And what are the limits that we would impose that? So I will give you, let's say, for the sake of compromise, that every 10 years, the people can vote on this as well. And it will be simple majority. So 50% plus one. What would we have? What what were you envisioning as the limits there, so that we don't have perpetual increases or perpetual decreases? So a healthy inflation rate, or well, people don't consider deflation a good thing, but it depends from my perspective. But inflation in a good, healthy economy typically hovers around two percent, three percent, from what I remember my economics class. Okay. So I'm thinking around that two to three percent at the very least, and it's every ten years. So you so would have to go three percent raise or decrease that yes. they could vote for. Yes. Okay. And I, I would. I, and I would. I can live to... with that. And if it's every ten years and not every time it seats up, I've, because the other thing then, and and I guess my other question then would be: Is this across all of the branches? Like obviously not the president, but like Congress and the Senate. Or are we talking? It would about be for like, both chamber. It would be for both chambers of Congress. Okay, so you would then, and, and would that be at just the federal level, or would that also be federal, at the state the, level? That'd be at the federal. The states could do whatever the heck they want. I don't care what okay. the states do. <laughs> I'm talking federal, about the federal level. Federal level, ten years. I'm just making. And I would, and I would give you this as well. And I'll give you this as well. 
as far as include the benefits question in there. Um, or at least I'll give you this for the benefits portion. I'm willing to compromise and give you put that in the constitutional and granted. So Congress cannot give themselves a benefit uh, or even through the Census Bureau, because I think if we every 10 years, we decide whether or not that their benefits should be suspended or not every 10 years. I think that would hurt the continuity aspect. It would. It would also make it a little more volatile of a market, right? Because the very concept of at least like the long term benefits, like their pension plans and stuff like that, <laughs> we wouldn't want I, them to be like, hey, guess what? You got 70,000 this year and then, you know, 20 years down the road, zero. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the continuity aspect, I could, I'm willing to give that. I'm willing to either, actually, I'm willing to let that go and put that in the constitutional grain as far as like no benefits because that's. At the end of the day, like they're working a secondary job, and if they want benefits, like their secondary job can provide it for them. Right, and they should be going back to that anyway. So, do you want to touch briefly then on? Uh, so it sounds like benefits are fixed. Like that's just the way yes. that they are. Um, you're only going so your Medicare and everything else. Or they don't even they don't get Medicare. They get the good stuff. Uh, so medical <laughs> coverage, eye, dental, those are only pertaining to them in their service time. So, but their ben- their benefits after they get out of Congress, then which would include like their uh, their pension and things like that. Right, right. now, it's like eighty percent. And you know what? If we want to give them eighty percent of you know the thirty thousand you're talking about, that's fine. Um, that, that's that's <laughs> what, what what do we do? We want to do away with it? Like personally, I don't see a reason to give them a pension. I mean, especially because you mentioned that like, if they're not working a second job while they serve, like, let's say they're like, I just really want to focus on this and either I have family money and I can afford it, or I can make do given where I live and what my living expenses are. I don't really care. Um, and I don't want to, you know, take on those extra duties. I really want to focus on serving for the limited time that I have. Let's say that there's a person like that. Well, then once they're done, they're going to go back out and get a job then, right? So that that's – and that goes right. back to what the framers intend, the founding fathers, when they wrote the Constitution and when they were setting this up. They were thinking you go and you serve and then you leave. So we've limited them to 20 years at the federal level, and that means that they're going to have to go get their benefits and retirement elsewhere. Why are we paying through our taxpayers probably billions of dollars worth of pension things every year? for them to do a crappy job like in my in my mind i'd say throw out any of their like you know extra 401k stuff like if they want to put money into it while they're in there for 20 years whatever that's fine but i would say i was gonna say that i was gonna say i mean they're trying to cut benefits from the military who those who have actually done their times and they're willing and the congress they have much better benefits than military members so i'm totally fine with taking away their pensions at least uh, when they, <laughs> I'm I'm fine with that. I'm willing to like keep their benefits as far as like you know dental care, uh, health care while they're in those 20 years. I'm fine with that. But as far as like their pensions and everything like that, we can make that in the constitutional, make it constitutional women say they don't get pensions when they get done. Health and dental while in Congress, then and then nothing after. More or oh, less, okay. yeah. Okay, good. Look at that. Look at that. We've already freed up millions and billions of dollars. I love it. Uh, <laughs> and we can stick that towards something else. <laughs> okay, yes. was there – so we did get to – I don't think we've touched on the pay yet and, like, so how that would be 
determined. So you threw out the idea. You said thirty thousand, which is the average for a service, for the service Enlist member. Yeah, for like the first, like the early years of enlistment, it's okay. like twenty to thirty thousand dollars. Okay. Now, one thing to keep in mind with that is when you're in the military. For those who don't know, like all your food and everything else is provided, which means you've got food, which you've it, got housing. And, so that's which it makes sense because we already compromised on letting them keep their benefits while they're in their twenty year reign. Right. So what we're saying here then is that they get the low pay because they've got similar circumstances. Now, what Congress doesn't give them that the military does is a place to stay. Right. Like you, you get the you get the bunkers, <laughs> you get the barracks <laughs> in the military. What would we do? Because, you know, you can easily spend, you know, fifth uh, on a on a reasonably priced area. And, and I'm thinking more like the South, right? Not, not, not the coasts areas, or DC <laughs> or DC, you know, you're, you're, you're easily blowing 30,000 on rent. So I feel like what we either need to do is find a way to provide that, or we need to re raise their pay or find something else. Now, let me throw out Why this not? idea. Go ahead. Uh, so here's an alternative we could look into either the mean salary or the median salary of their area. So if they're, if we're talking like the federal, you know, if, if we're limiting this discussion to the house of representatives and the Senate, then for the Senate, it would be, let's say the median salary of their state. And if it's the house of representatives, then it would be the median salary of their district. So you would not be in favor of universal uh, salary then? Not really, largely because let's say I'm a senator in Tennessee, thirty thousand dollars goes a lot further than a senator in D.C. or a senator. I, I, actually, D.C. gets senators, don't they? Well, here's what I was thinking. Maybe as a compromise to your idea, keep what we have so far, make it a universal salary, but let their states handle the housing situation. Okay, so you're saying if I'm running in the state of Kentucky. And the state of Kentucky will be the ones that will be responsible for your housing because you're representing them technically. Okay, that and that uh, – I see. Because if we're still letting the state representatives for the state, right? So if I'm in the Kentucky State House or the Kentucky State – um, state of Kentucky, yeah. Then, then you know, Kentucky can do whatever they want with that. But if I am representing the state of Kentucky in the U.S. House or the U.S. Senate, then Kentucky gets to subsidize my housing situation. Yeah, and the people can decide in the state of Kentucky how to go about that. I actually like that a lot because all of them are living in D.C. or close to it, uh, which means that yeah, their states can decide how much they like that particular senator or congressperson. So universal salary states. I'm just jotting these down so that when we do our compromise discussion. <laughs> At the end of this three branch series. What is series. Ryan and Ken's constitutional amendments for these three branches? Like? <laughs> for the three I branches. Like no, I, I think that that was a creative way to kind of bridge the gap between the two. Uh, what else did we want to, to get through in this segment? Okay, so the second point I had, so it looks like we got through the first point. That whole shebang was about the pretty much how Congress is going to get paid <laughs> and how the whole increase pay increase is going to work out. So 
it looks like we finally got through that. The second point I had on here was any citizen who aspires to run for office must have a minimum of 16 years without any association with lobbying to minimize conflict of interest. Um, which it doesn't seem like there's you doesn't seem like you have much too much of a gripe with that. I don't know. Am I wrong? So when you say 16 years, I, I guess I'm confused. So is this 16 of the 20 years? Like what what is what is this going towards? What are these qualifications for again? Is this to run for the U.S. House or Senate? Just yeah, for either one. So, th- if you're trying to run for House or Senate, you cannot have at least at least before you enter the 20 year reign, uh, you cannot have any associate with any lobbyist for at least a 16 year period. So, uh, the House of Representatives, for example, it which is like the eligible age is 25, I think. Um, before you turn 25, there has to be at least a 16-year period before you turn 25 where you had no association with lobbying, at least. And then you can enter as Congress in that 20-year cap, but you can't serve. You can't be a lobbyist. As I mentioned in the first point, you can't be a lobbyist as, as a secondary job or uh, be paid by lobbyists either. While to... you're in Congress, that definitely makes sense. And I do understand where you're coming from with this concern. My concern coming out of that is where does the freedom of speech go, freedom of association, et cetera, because, you know, I understand the problems that come about from, hey, I was a lobbyist. I have all these connections for big oil or, you know, radical energy. And then I go into Congress and they're obviously funding me. Um, and if I'm remembering correctly off the top of my head, you know, lobbyists and corporations, and all that, like there's really not a lot of restriction on how much they can lobby and what they can do because the Supreme Court ruled that it's it's freedom of speech, like where you invest your money and how you invest it. So I would need to brush up on that again to be 100 percent certain. But my biggest concern is how would that not be ruled unconstitutional? Other than the fact that you know it'd be constitutional here because it's the constitution. Like, <laughs> like, how are we? Let me put it this way: How are we not trampling on freedom of speech and freedom of association by limiting what you can do beforehand? Because I understand during that makes sense because obviously I shouldn't be able to work for a lobbyist company as my side hustle while I'm also supposed to be representing my district. Right? Like that might be a conflict of interest. I could see that as a reasonable restriction. But for 16 years beforehand, like I mean. That, that would mean that like none of my early career could I do something like that that I'm passionate for. <laughs> and also if I wait, like, I mean, I may, I don't know. I, I couldn't do that. Like, let's say I was doing that right now. And I was like, oh, man, I want to do this. Now I have to wait 16 years. <laughs> How are we not trampling they, on freedom of speech with that? So is 16 years – 16 years is too long, the time frames too long? No, my main concern is that by placing any limitation on there, I feel like you're running you're, – you're, you're basically – trampling on free speech there because, freedom of association and my concern is let's say you let's say there is no limit and you've had that background experience and you entered a cab like who's to say you're not who's to say behind closed doors you're still going to get paid by lobbyists to pass certain uh bills that they want to accomplish whether it's radical or moderate doesn't really matter you still have that association you still have that uh connection without and so for me having that 16 year gap and makes me feel comfortable that this person doesn't is not coming in with their own agenda and they won't have and they're less likely i should say a lot less likely to be corrupt from within so 
when we do debate and we attack arguments, we have this this idea called uniqueness, right? So uniqueness means that if I say this is a non-unique issue, what I mean by that is that it's going to be there one way or the other. And I'm worried that what you've just pointed out there is not unique to the system at all because right now we have a lot like let, let's let's say you get someone squeaky clean you're going to get picked up by people who back your agenda right so if i've never done right. anything and then um you know i run and i'm like yeah big oil drill baby drill guess who's going to fund my campaigns people who are tied to that sector right same for green energy etc so i feel like even if i was never associated with them i'll still get picked up with them directly indirectly or even if there's like three or four degrees between me and that company, they will still fund my platform to some extent. So I'm worried that on top of trampling on top of the First Amendment here and the ability to have freedom of association, I feel like even if you try to make them squeaky clean like you were talking about, I feel like you're still going to get the the influence of lobbyists. And we can't restrict lobbyists because freedom of speech. So I'm I'm coming from that perspective. I don't know what you think on that. Okay, so you do agree as far as once you're in that 20-year cap, the lobbying from within, you're against. You agree with that, I'm assuming, right? Right. I don't think that you need to be affiliated with lobbyists, but um, actually, I don't know what the current – what is the status quo? Um, are you, you shouldn't be tied to lobbyists, but you are. I don't remember. I remember exact the top of my head, but I know a lot of uh, Congress members or – former com like when they leave congress they become lobbyists for the new right. congress members and there's a th conflict of interest at that point um and so i'm against that that's my that's one of the main concerns with lobbying and so maybe when it comes to okay i'm willing it's to a, let go go ahead i can give you uh the, the political reform act requires individuals businesses and other organizations that make or receive payments to influence and this is state government decisions such as advocating for or against legislative bills and state agency regulations they're required to register as lobbyists and submit periodic reports of their lobbying activity so here's my understanding then based off of that and some other things i'm thinking of you 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 have to basically have a way to track this right like i can be funded by these companies but that needs to be transparent so that that's kind of what I'm understanding is the status quo that like you have to be registered as a lobbyist and people need to know, Oh, Ryan is being funded by OPEC. So when he says I'm all about EVs, we know he's full of it. Right. Like, I think that's kind of how they, they balance that. So with that in mind, what were you saying? Well, I was saying, if anything, I'm willing to let go of the 16 years free of association because okay. of the freedom of speech. Cause I think that gets too subjective at that point. Sure. And you kind of brought up a good point as far as like, how would you track that? And kind of, which kind of contradicts my point earlier, as far as I'm um, concerned about uh, how do you track the family members, as far as how do you know these Congress members and their family members are not their immediate family, right? They're close IRS, baby <laughs> IRS. And let's be honest, the IRS is not going to be 87,000 people forever. Um, at least I hope not anyway, but <laughs> yeah, it'll probably get bigger. We'll see. <laughs> it depends. Um, but uh, so that'll be like really hard to follow or track. Someone to let that sure. go. And, but as long as we can keep in there, uh, they can't be lobbyists themselves in there and they can't 
or the lobbyists, because like you said, they're going to have to be associated with them at some point. Um, the lobbyists cannot be former Congress members. I think that's a lot easier to track. Well, and here's the thing. I'm even willing to stick a pin in this and return, not, not, not the, not what you just mentioned, but just thinking of how complex lobbying is. I think we should address that as a whole separate thing. Take some time to brush up on the current rules, see if we want to reform it. But I think what you proposed as far as they can't be lobbyists themselves during those 20 years and, you know, a few restrictions, I, I would be open to that. And I'd really like to to dive deeper into that. Like what types of transparency should we be enforcing so that you have freedom of speech and freedom of support and association with your money, but also balance that with transparency for the people. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so that's, so that's that. <laughs> and <laughs> okay. So real quick state, so I can take this for our notes. Um, we're, we're, we're not going to do the 16 year rule but they cannot be lobbyists and they're not supposed to be affiliated with lobbyists while they're in office, basically. More or less. And if they have any association, it cannot be a former Congress member who became a lobbyist after they got out. Gotcha. Okay, good. Yep. Go ahead. Let's see the electoral process. Oh, this, we already went over this. Uh, I guess we kind of yeah. hit two birds in one stone with the pay and the ballot box situation. Um, now, as far as, like, let's say, hypothetically, this gets ratified, uh, how would this, as far as their pay and everything like that, how do you think two presidential cycles is a is sufficient amount of time to adjust, the system to adjust for the pay and everything? Because they're, they're getting paid, like, $200,000 a year, Congress, on average, right now. Sure. And let's say this gets ratified, and they're going to see their pay go from 200000 Thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. <laughs> so I'm thinking, like, two presidential cycles is enough time to phase into this new system where they're not being paid like kings and queens. No, no, I, uh, I agree with that. That's that kicks it down the road a little bit. Get, that gives them some time. This the United States time. So that's all the points. That's all the proposals I had. I don't know if you had any extra you wanted to go over, but um. I think we've reached a natural ending point for tonight. <laughs> I agree. No, I think that that sums it up nicely. We've set a nice little boundary and massively gutted the bloat of these fat cats. Yes. And so, folks, thank you for coming on this show. Ryan, would you mind going ahead and giving your show a plug real quick? Yeah, sure. So if you're interested in not just hearing the Ryan and Ken echo chamber and you'd like to hear some diversity... <laughs> of thought and some discussion might call it a debate although i feel like that intimidates people more than it should every uh monday we release the audio only version of our podcast which is uh, basically we pick a, a, a current events and and we debate it and we have you know we, we actually had a good rotation of guests on there ken's been on um and we've we've gotten some some great insight from various people on many different points of the political spectrum but the idea is let's try to have four people on each of these shows discussing from different points and different beliefs and backgrounds, what do we think is the right solution here? Um, having those discussions that Congress, quite frankly, is not. And then on, let's see, so those are those are live streams Thursdays usually at 7 p.m. And then on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. you get Bill Me with, with Ryan, which is where I find relevant legislation and we go over it. I, I read you the text of the bill 
And then we do a couple of things at the end of that reading. I give you um, a few ratings. So number one is the legislation efficacy. I talk about whether or not I think the legislation will achieve its purpose. So an example would be uh, I'm currently going through the 557-page bill, omnibus package, that Congress, <laughs> uh, th that the Senate just rammed through uh, with 50 votes plus Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker, and it deals with a lot of things. And so we've just broken that down, and, and we just talked about uh, the taxes, how they're going to be raised, and I gave it a low efficacy score because I don't think that they're going to use these taxes well. That would be one example. I also talk about the, the media accuracy. Uh, where that started was I covered the Don't Say Gay Bill, and I talked about how the media <laughs> had been covering it. And so I talk about do I think that the news outlets like your legacy medias, your, your big corporate talking heads, have been accurately covering the legislation now that I've read it. And so you'll get my scores. And I always post all of the texts so that you can find them and go through them yourself and I give you all of my resources. So I'm trying to help create more informed voters. I don't care whether you agree or disagree with me. I just want you to be informed and make your own decisions and know what's going on. So that is that is Tuesdays. And now you'll hear my cuts of the blueprint segments Friday, <laughs> uh, usually in the morning. So yeah, that's that's what we do. We got a pretty nice variety, which I will give Ken credit for this. I actually stole the idea of having different types of segments uh, from his show taboo topic just to kind of you know get that that diversity going and, people like. and people can find you just literally typing in between the liars on any social yep. media page right at between the liars on all social medias and then you can also find us on youtube twitch and we do live stream through our facebook too so those three and then yeah we we have twitter we have facebook we have we, we even have truth social uh, i don't post on there but you know hey gotta have your presence everywhere uh, we have a TikTok. <laughs> haven't posted much on there either. I've just been so busy. But yeah, if if you can think of a a platform, we've probably got it. All right, folks. And with that said, thanks again so much for tuning into today's show. I hope y'all enjoy and have a great blessed Wednesday. Until next time, God bless. Mm -hmm.